seated. Our brothers and sisters, we come now to the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. And as we embark upon the first verses of this chapter, we are given a familiar phrase, aren't we? And it is, these are the generations. And we've heard that phrase before. This phrase is used in the scriptures as a transition. It is meant to be a marker to show us that the scriptures are, and therefore God is, transitioning from one important story to another, or one important narrative to another. Moses, the inspired writer of the scriptures, of the book of Genesis at least, has gone from the account of the heavens and the earth, and then transitions to the generations of Adam, and so on, and so on. And now we are at the generations of Jacob. And this narrative will now take a transition from its emphasis of being on the life of Jacob to now its emphasis being on the life of Jacob's favored son, Joseph. Many of us are familiar with the life of Joseph, aren't we? His life has been depicted on both live action and animated films. Books have been written about the life of Joseph. And for many of us, the story of Joseph is one of our favorites in all of the scriptures. He is well known, as well known as David, as well known as Samson and Daniel. Joseph is one of the rare characters in all of the scriptures about which no negative thing is said about Joseph. About which Joseph is said to at least not commit any sin, at least in that which has been recorded for us in the scriptures. He is a man that we admire for his great perseverance, his great forgiveness, and his great faith. But dear ones, there is much more to learn from the life of Joseph than just perseverance. I pray that this morning we would be able to see that Joseph and all that he experiences in his life is meant to point us forward and onward to Christ. So then with that said, let us begin to at least understand and get a sense of what this chapter is, is saying and what the Lord is communicating to us here in these verses. And with God's help, we will consider three points considering or concerning the, the coat of Joseph, or the tunic of Joseph, which is symbolized in so many different ways in this chapter. So let's consider our first point. Number one, the coat given. The coat given, verses one through four. The chapter begins with, again, the phrase, these are the generations. And after this phrase, the first name that is mentioned is the name of Joseph. The rest of the book of Genesis, the rest or remaining 13 chapters, will emphasize uh, the life of Joseph, God's dealings with this man, and also God's dealings with Joseph's brothers. We are introduced to Joseph, and when we are introduced to him, he is a 17-year-old young man, and he is pasturing the flocks with his brothers. And if you can see Joseph in your mind's eye, a 17-year-old man maybe sitting on the, along the hills of the, the country of Canaan. He's a young man, still in his youth. And because he's still in his youth, we, we may have a tendency to think that Joseph is maybe not very well experienced in life. That he's a 17-year-old boy. How much could he have really experienced? Maybe he has been sheltered by his father. Uh, maybe he has been kept away from the evils of the world. But we must remember, remember that Joseph, in the, uh, in the context in which he was living, probably lived and had more life experience than we might imagine. Probably was exposed to more things that we might imagine, which would have given him a great deal of understanding or wisdom just about life. 
His father was an old man. Joseph has been raised with an old man as a father. And for those of us and those of you maybe who have grown up with a, a young father, you sometimes have kind of grown up with him. But for those who have been privileged, I would say, to have an old man as a father, you may not have been exposed to all of the activity of a young man, but you are exposed to the wisdom of an old man. Take into account that Joseph also, who has a father who is an old man, has a father who has not one, not two, not three, but four wives. Joseph would have learned a little something about relationships, at least, by witnessing a father with four wives. Not only this, but Joseph is one of twelve sons, and ten of his brothers are from three different mothers. Joseph knows a little bit of something about something, I would say. Even though he's young, he's the second to the youngest of his eleven brothers. The second to the youngest of of 11 brothers. And if any of you have any brothers, and especially if they are older brothers, then you know what life can be like with older brothers. I had the privilege to have an older brother who every time I went into his room, it wasn't our room, it was his room, what are you doing in here? Get out. Don't let me see your face in here again. And I would go scurrying along. I can imagine having nine other brothers, uh, maybe one nice, maybe not so nice, but nine other older brothers. Joseph knows a little something about life. Here's the other thing. And his mother is dead. His mother has died giving birth to his baby brother, Benjamin. Therefore, his father has not only had to be father to Joseph, his father has had to be father and mother to Joseph in some kind of way. And we are introduced to Joseph, 17 years old. All of this is his context, the life that he is living. And he is pastoring. He is a shepherd along with his other shepherd brothers. And we might imagine him sitting on the hillside, overlooking the flock. A young man maybe filled with optimism, but a young man who is most assuredly aware of life. And it is there while Joseph is in the field with his brothers, that we are told the first thing about Joseph, other than his age and his occupation, we are told something else about Joseph, that he gives a bad report to his father about his brothers. That's the first thing that we learn about Joseph uh, in terms of what he has said or what he's being communicated to, what he's communicating to someone else. And it is at this point that many scholars are somewhat divided some have a very negative view of Joseph because of the statement that Joseph has given a, a, a bad report about his brothers. Some would say, well, Joseph was just a spoiled brat. He not only is a spoiled brat, but he's what none of us want to be. He's a rat. He's a snitch. Now, Joseph gives a bad report to his father because he's, for some kind of reason, at least we'll find out in just a moment, he's serving as a type of foreman for his father. Meaning this, he has been placed as the one in charge of his brothers by his father, making sure that his brothers are staying on, tra on task, reporting back to his father the ways in which his brothers are either succeeding in their work or failing to do their job. Now, how do we know this? We know this because later, Jacob will instruct Joseph to once again, go and check on your brothers. It seems to be that was Joseph's responsibility that was in, uh, invested upon him, given to him, or vested upon him, by his father. His father has appointed him as leader of his brothers. This is the first impression. And for some of us, we might be tempted to say, well, no, he is a snitch. No, he is doing his job. It's important for us to allow the scriptures and, and not our first impressions to uh, interpret the scriptures for, our, for us. His father has given him the responsibility to be the leader of the home, or at least his successor. 
to report progress, uh, to report uh, lack of progress. The scriptures are, are, are not so much telling us that he was a rat, but rather that he has been appointed by his father as ruler over his brothers. Now, who's the one that usually should be telling uh, the brothers what they should and should not be doing, how they should and should not be working? It's usually the oldest. But in this case, it's the second to the youngest, Joseph. Evidence, again, is found in that uh, Israel loves. See how it says that? Israel. Not Jacob, but Israel. Israel loves Joseph more than all of his sons. Because his son was the son of his old age. And to uh, show how much he loves his son, he gives to his son a very colored tunic. Uh, some of you who are from an older time might uh, know this as the coat of many colors. Israel loved. Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons. And did you notice, brothers and sisters, that the scriptures do not call Jacob Jacob at this point, but the scriptures call him Israel. Now, there's something that we must know whenever the scriptures are referring to Jacob as Israel or Jacob as Jacob. When the scriptures call Jacob, Jacob, it's because Jacob is acting like Jacob. It's because Jacob is acting like that old twisted man that he used to be. But when the scriptures refer to Israel as Israel or Jacob as Israel, it is because he is acting as the man of faith. It is because he is acting as the man whom God has changed and not the man who used to be. Now, it's at this point that we must ask ourselves then, how is Israel walking by faith or being a man of faith by loving his son more than all of his other sons? How is Israel being a man of faith by favoring one son over the others and also Marking him with favoritism. How is he marking him with favoritism? He is, in, he is giving to him. He is blessing him with a coat that stands him out or a tunic that, that stands him out or marks him apart from all of his other brothers. Now, how is that an act of faith? How is he being Israel and not Jacob? For many of us, what we might think... Jacob is being Jacob, isn't he? He's, he's committing a sin of favoritism. He's causing his sons to, to burn with anger against their father. I say to you, the scriptures at this point are not teaching us a lesson about parenting. It's so important. Is there something that we can learn about parenting through this? Of course there is something that we can learn about parenting. Is the script, are the scriptures intending to teach us about parenting at this point? No, they are not. They're not the scriptures are not condoning uh, favoritism. That, that's not the, the point. The scriptures at this point are teaching us something about Joseph and God's choosing of Joseph and not about Jacob and Jacob's favoritism. Many who are preaching, who have preached this passage, they take this, this passage as an opportunity to teach about parenting. And while it is true that we can learn something about parenting through this, the message of chapter 37 is election. The message of, of chapter 37 is not parents don't show favoritism, although we should not. But that is not the primary message of chapter 37. The primary message of chapter 37 is this. God has chosen Joseph. This chapter is about God choosing a man so that he might preserve his people, even if it means getting ready to send that man into Egypt so that his people can be saved. That's, that's the point of this chapter. And though Israel did not have all of the scriptures and all of the revelation that we have, by his own choice, by his own free act, that is being guided by God. He is making God's choice in choosing Joseph. Meaning this, Jacob, Israel, is choosing Joseph, but he's only choosing Joseph because God chose Joseph. 
This is why he is called Israel, because he is recognizing something that he even doesn't understand at this point. He is doing something that even he has no idea what the fruit will be or the fruit that will come from this choice. Joseph is God's choice. This is, therefore, this is an act of faith. Because Israel's election, if you will, is simply Israel's amen to God's election. Jacob loved Joseph and showed special love to him without even knowing it was because God loved Joseph and because God was going to show special love to Joseph. In a, in a most curious way as well, isn't it? Jacob chose Joseph to be the overseer of his brothers because God would choose Joseph to be the overseer of his brothers. This is how Israel's love for Joseph is an act of faith. That's why he's called Israel here. And further, uh, to imprint this special love upon Joseph, he makes for, for Joseph a very, a very colored, a varied color, colored tunic. Uh, it was a, a richly ornamented robe. It was ornate. It was beautiful. It, it most certainly had long, wide sleeves that would come down all the way to the ankles. And it was a mark of royalty. It was a mark also of being set apart and distinct. It said to the person who was wearing this robe, You are a royal overseer. You are not a worker. You're not a manual worker. You couldn't work wearing such a, a tunic. Working people wore rough tunics. They wore uh, sleeveless tunics that were uh, to their knees or at least above their knees so that they could work. They didn't wear long, decorated, flowing tunics. Evidence of its royalty is found in 2 Samuel 13, 18, where this tunic is used again. And it's used to describe the one who was wearing it as being a royal person. So this tunic will become central to this chapter. It will come up again and again and again. By giving Joseph this robe, Jacob was appointing him as the next head of the family. Now this would have burned the older brothers. Reuben was the oldest. But Reuben forfeited his right to being the head of the family when he challenged his father by sleeping with his father's wife. He's out. Simeon and Levi were, would be next in line. But they didn't make a very wise decision. They didn't show discernment when they massacred the local inhabitants of Shechem. Therefore, it was Joseph. Joseph who would be chosen for leadership. It was the second to the youngest who would be chosen as the head of the family. This is a theme that's been developing in the book of Genesis, hasn't there? It's that the traditions of men will not decide who God chooses. God will decide who he chooses. And thus far, God has chosen the younger ones, the, the ones that the world would say are not the chosen ones. It would be through them that the promises of God would be fulfilled. The Lord chose young Isaac, younger Isaac. The Lord chose younger Jacob. And now the Lord chooses second to the youngest Joseph. And it is interesting, there's an interesting fact in John chapter 4 and verse number 5 that's not stated for us in the book of Genesis, but John tells us that Jacob gave Joseph the land of, of Sychar. That Joseph, or Jacob, gives Joseph the land of Sychar. The land of, of Canaan is Jacob's, and he is little by little uh, taking possession of it. And it was during his lifetime that he had had a possession of a certain land called Sychar. And John tells us later, that which is not written for us in the book of John, that Jacob gives that land to Joseph. This would be more evidence that Joseph is receiving his father's inheritance, which would be designated only for the oldest. The land that belonged to Jacob, he gives to his successor, Joseph. Now, this would cause his brothers to burn with anger against their brother Joseph. 
because Joseph was so loved by his father, set apart by his father, they hated him. And the Bible says that they could not even speak to him on friendly terms or they could not speak a peaceable word to him. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Meaning this, they could not give to Joseph the most common greeting that any Hebrew would give to any Hebrew, shalom, they would not even offer that to Joseph because of their hatred and jealousy for him. And if that were not enough, there came a day when Joseph came to his brothers and said, guys, I had a dream last night. Listen up. He came to his brothers and tells them this dream. We were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to myself. What do you think about that? You might imagine that there was absolute silence as these tough men, shepherds, two of whom are murderers, stared at him. Oh, really, that was your dream. We're going to bow down to you. And it's amazing that they seem to be able to interpret the dream better than Joseph does. Joseph is just telling them, hey, listen to this dream. And they, they interpret it for him. Oh, we're going to bow down to you, are we? And if Joseph had not learned anything about that experience, he has yet another dream. You would have thought that he would have just said, I'll just keep this one to myself. But he has another dream. Lo, I had another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He can't contain himself. Here's the other message that I've received, or here's the other dream that I've gotten. And this time it's not only you, brothers, but it's mom and dad. They will also be bowing down to me. And his father at first is amazed. What are you talking about? Us, your mom and dad. And uh, Rachel is dead at this point, and so therefore the mother would have been Leah. Leah would have been the mother that Jacob was speaking about. Your mother and father, we, we are going to be bowing down to you as well, all of us. But then there's an interesting statement at the end of verse 11. But his father kept the saying in mind. It is though Jacob, after hearing the dream, was at first offended by the dream. But then he takes a step back. And he begins to maybe interpret the dream through eyes of faith. Or ears of faith. What would he have understood? What would he have kept in his heart? Well, he would have seen and understood that these dreams, they were more like visions. And that this was the way that God communicated to his people at this time. Therefore, Joseph was not having a dream. Joseph was receiving revelation from God. Therefore, Joseph's dream was God's word to his people. And God's word to his people, when it was given to the people of God, was rejected and hated by the one who brought the message. Scriptures were, were not what they are today. During that time, God gave his revelation either audibly or by way of vision. And though Jacob did not understand the meaning of this, Jacob was taking all of these things in and understanding that this might be God revealing to us his plans and purposes in this world. If you like, the dreams of Joseph are God's validation of Jacob's coat. Of God's validation of Jacob's choice. Jacob makes Joseph the favorite and the dreams are confirmation from God. Yes, he is the favorite and here is what he will do. It links the father's giving of the tunic to God's giving of the dream. Do you see that? 
God is, is, is connecting the two. Yes, He is your choice and He is also my choice. And I will prove that by way of this vision that I am giving to you. Hear this message and receive it. But they would not. God is telling them something that, that they did not even know yet, that Joseph did not even know yet, and it was this. Everything that's going to take place from here on out is being ordered and ordained by God. Everything that's going to happen thus far, God is doing this. We know the story, don't we? Oh, Some of us, we could tell it better than others. But we must understand that these dreams were not random. They were God's message. And God was saying through the message, from this point onward, everything that you see, I'm doing. Everything, God? Everything. He's saying at the beginning of the story, I'm in charge of this. This is my doing. This is my work. His name is not mentioned in a whole chapter. But he is everywhere present. John Calvin says God revealed in dreams what he would do so that afterwards it would be known that nothing happened fortuitously. Nothing was, was happenstance. Nothing was coincidental. God was doing this. This is, this is not a story of daddy's pet. This is not the story of a spoiled brat or a snitch. This is the story of God's divine choice of a future deliverer. And that would be Joseph. From boyhood, Joseph is marked out as ruler. He is set apart for a unique destiny. And his rich tunic is clear evidence of who he is and who he is going to become. That is the coat given. Secondly, the coat taken. These will be shorter points. Verses 12 through 28. Joseph was sent by his father to go and to give a report about his brothers. See how they're doing. See about their work at Shechem. This 17-year-old boy, he travels some 50 miles to Shechem. When he arrives, he is wandering about. He's looking around for his brothers. And then he's found by someone who notices that he's wandering and says, Who are you looking for? My brothers. Oh, they've moved on. They've gone to a more fruitful plain in Dothan. So Joseph goes maybe another 10 miles to Dothan. And as he approaches, his brothers see him coming in the distance. Now, how do you think his brothers recognize that it was Joseph coming from the distance? Well, he was wearing fluorescent all over him, wasn't he? You could see him from a distance because of the, the coat of many colors. And as he is approaching, here's what their conversation is. Here comes the dreamer. <laughs> Here comes the dreamer. Now then, verse 19, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Now listen, these are murderers who are speaking. These are men who have massacred the men of Shechem. They killed every man there and took every woman and child as plunder. When they say, let's kill him, they mean, let's kill him. Because murder is not beyond them. Imagine this conversation taking place. And you, uh, maybe optimistic, Maybe walking up to your brothers or walking up to your friends and without realizing the conversation is smiling at you. Let's kill this guy. Let's just take him out. Brothers, how are you? I can't stand this guy. I'll tell you what. You get his neck, I'll get the legs. He has no idea what is awaiting him. None whatsoever. In all of the dialogue that they have with one another, do you notice that they never once use his name? The men who cannot even say shalom to him will not even bring themselves to say his name. And what is he coming for? Why is he there? He's coming to, to do his father's will. 
And as he is coming to do his father's will, he is walking straight into the lion's mouth. Reuben the oldest. We may have mixed emotions about him, don't we? Because as Reuben is hearing their plot, he says, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into one of the cisterns. A cistern is, is a place that holds water. They would be in the ground, and they would be bottle-shaped. So there would be no way for, for Joseph to, to climb out because of its bottle shape. Let's throw him into one of the cisterns. Uh, let, let's throw him there, and then, and then we'll sell him, or we'll get rid of him somehow. But his plan all along is to rescue him out of his brother's hands. Now, we remember what, what Reuben has done. He's slept with his father's wife. So it may be that Reuben is trying to get back into good graces with his father. Maybe trying to, to earn a better standing before, before his father by rescuing his father's favorite. Whatever the case may be. The Bible says in verse 23, So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Brothers and sisters, What's the first thing that the brothers of Joseph did when he arrived? What's the first thing they went for? They went for the tunic. The very first thing they do is they, they grab him and they rip him of his, of his election. They grab him and, and they strip him of the very thing that has set them, him apart from them. The very colored tunic. The thing that has enraged them. The thing that has caused them day after day to be reminded of their father's favoritism or love for him and not them. It is a thing now that has caused them to go to the point of no return. There's no turning back now. They throw him into the cistern, the pit without any water. And the Bible says later when the brothers are, are together, when they are in Egypt together, when they're trying to understand what is taking place and why all of these sore providences and, and confusing things are taking place in their lives, one of the brothers says, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. They were trying to, to, to explain and understand why is all of these things happening the way they are. And one of the brothers says, it's because of Joseph. Remember how he was pleading with us? Brothers, please don't do this, brothers. Please, I'm your brother. Why would you do this to me? My father sent me to you. Don't kill me. Why would you do this? And that brother says, and we wouldn't listen. That's why all of this has happened. And did you notice a very cold point in verse 25 that they strip him, they take him, they throw him into the pit. And the Bible says they sat down and ate a meal. <laughs> oh, the cold heart of these men. One Puritan said, how could they have said grace before or after food with their brother's cries ringing in their ears? Imagine that. Pass me that chicken. Brothers. Save me. Give me some more of that bread. Oh, cold-hearted men they were. And what would they do now? The Bible says, it was just then that they looked up as if it was some kind of, of convenience or happenstance. They looked up and there just so happened to be a caravan of Ishmaelites, their relatives. They are distant cousins. And they are going to Egypt. Now remember, who is the one who has given the vision from the very beginning? God has. Who is the one who has said, this is my choice? God has said this. Yes, Jacob has freely done this, but he has done so being led by God. Therefore, everything that's taking place now is God's doing. You and I know very well there are no chance occurrences. There is no such thing as luck or happenstance in this world. This is God's world. This is all God's doing. And so Judah, 
uh, and you know the name, don't you? The line of the tribe of Judah. Judah, of all of those, of all the brothers, the one through whom the Messiah will come, the leader of the royal tribe of Israel, he comes up with the bright idea, let's sell our brother for profit. Why let him die for nothing? Let's at least make some money out of this. For, and then he says, after all, he's our brother. Our own flesh. Cold, calculated people say things like that, don't they? Uh, maniacs say things like that. <laughs> Serial killers, <laughs> they say things like that. There is nothing brotherly about this act, is there? Listen, they could have heard the message of God. They could have heard the vision of God and said, that's interesting, brother. Let's keep that in mind. Instead, they heard the word of God and it caused them to hate. It caused them to great jealousy. It caused them to sell their brother into slavery and send him off to the very place where they would one day come running for resources in order to save their life. God is doing this. The Midianites, that would be those, the Ishmaelites, they pull Joseph out of the pit, and there he goes on his way to Egypt. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which amounts to about two years' wage. He was an expensive slave. The coat given is now the coat stripped off of him and was lying there without an owner, and it symbolized their rejection of him and of his destiny. But that's not the end. Let's conclude with our final point, the coat destroyed. Verses 29 and 36 through 36. Now it appears as we catch up with this uh, narrative that Reuben has somehow, in some way, sometime, he's exited this scene. For in verse 29, he returns. And when he returns, he's greatly distressed when he learns that Joseph is no longer in the cistern. And he tears his tunic, he tears his robe as a sign of great grief. But it seems as though Reuben is more concerned with himself than he is with Joseph. Because he says, the boy's not here. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> the boy's not here. As for me, where am I to go? Well, he needs to go back home, doesn't he? And he's the oldest, isn't he? And because he's the oldest, there is still somewhat a, a sense of responsibility as being the oldest over all of the brothers. And so, therefore, if he comes home and the most beloved brother is not with him, Reuben, what did you do? He's already in hot water. He's already in it thick with his father. And this will not make matters any better. Why didn't you take care of him? Where were you? How could you let this happen? And so then he joins his brothers. Rather than opposing his brothers, now he's joining his brothers. And they're devising a plan to cover up their sin. It's the plan that they've already come up with. We'll say a wild beast has devoured him. Well, how are we going to make this story believable? They take his robe. Or the coat, the tunic. They slaughter a goat. And they dip the tunic in blood. And the bloody tunic was to be used as a way to deceive their father into believing that Joseph had died a painful death by way of a ferocious animal. When they took this robe back to their father, they said, examine it. Listen to what they say. See if it's your son's. Again, they still will not say, see if it is our brothers. See if it is poor, devoured Joseph's robe. Their hatred continues. What an insult to Jacob, isn't it? Here's your precious tunic from your precious son. Here's your favorite's garment. Here is your choice son's garment. Who are you going to choose now, Dad? And there's poetic justice in this, isn't there? 
You will remember Jacob himself was involved with some garments, wasn't he? And Jacob himself was involved with some goats, wasn't he? He and his mother killed two goats and took the garments of Esau while Jacob wore them to deceive his own father. And they are surely sons of their father. Now this garment and the goat deceived the man who had used them earlier to deceive. And we might imagine old Jacob examining this tunic with a broken heart and saying, Yes, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast, he says, has devoured him. He believes the lie that his son has been torn to pieces. Jacob, now an old man, he mourns for his son. And the mourning goes on and it goes on. It goes beyond the the regular period of mourning. And when his sons and daughters come to say, Father, come on, let's let's move on. Let's, Let's get back on with life. He refuses to be comforted. He vows to wear funeral clothes as long as he lives. Some of us can imagine that. With our children and with our loved ones, I'll never get over this. I will never, ever get over this. And the last view that we have of this tunic is essentially that it is dipped and dripping with blood. And it is interesting, isn't it, as we sang just a few moments ago, that this bloody robe will be used to save many. Who does that remind us of? The scriptures say in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him, that is Joseph, into Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. The coat was given in love and sovereignty and glory and in beauty. The coat was taken in hatred, violence and anger. The coat was destroyed in blood, in ruin and despair. Joseph, the young man, chosen by his father to be the leader of his family. Joseph, the young man, given dreams by God to affirm his place, not only in the family, but in the world. Joseph, despised by his brothers, who was sent, he was sent to them by their father. When he arrives, he is attacked by them. He is sent into slavery into Egypt. But what are we to learn from this chapter? And I think that you've just gotten a hint of it. God is beginning this process of getting his people out of Canaan. Now that may be interesting. What do you mean he's beginning the process of getting the people out of Canaan? I thought they were supposed to go into Canaan. Well, they are being contaminated by Canaan. The people of God are being polluted by the Canaanites. Canaan is becoming toxic to them. We'll see this in the next chapter with Judah's dealings with a prostitute. The family of God were starting to get absorbed in the land. They were starting to compromise. And God is therefore beginning the process of getting them out of Canaan before they, the people of God, become altogether corrupted. Not only this, but God is also preparing to save them from the famine that is coming their way. And who would be the one? That God would use to save them from themselves and also to save them from famine that was coming their way. It would be Joseph. He would be the one to to draw his people out of Canaan and into Egypt to, to receive resources. And then eventually they will stay there in Egypt for a period of time. Just as God told Abraham they would a few hundred years earlier. God was also, therefore, laying a foundation for these sons of Israel who who will become the tribes of Israel for them to be transformed and changed. They will enter Egypt hard and cold. And they will come there changed by the man they thought was dead but is alive. 
Who does that sound like? God is allowing them to commit this atrocious crime. And this crime will later break their hearts to true repentance. Therefore, in the final analysis and in closing, it was God who sent Joseph to Egypt, not his brothers. Joseph will later say to his brothers, you meant this for evil. God intended it for good. It was not Joseph's dream, it was God's vision. The brothers rejected the word of God. It's not the brothers who sold Joseph into Egypt, God did. And they did all of these things freely. But the main purpose of this is to point us to Christ. There was someone else who was sent into Egypt to be preserved. During a time of death. Until he later came out and would save the world from their sin. The Lord Jesus Christ. This passage inspired an interpretation in the book of Acts chapter 7. Where Stephen is on trial before the Sanhedrin. He's making his defense And he's using this theme that you, people of God, those who God has privileged with his word and with his law, you have always rejected the people God has sent to you. You've rejected Moses. The brothers of Joseph rejected him. And he's using Moses and he's using Joseph and all of the other men of God who came before to the people of God. As a way to point to Christ and says, and you rejected Christ, the one that all of those people pointed towards. You rejected Christ. And you see, he's using Joseph as a type of Christ. In the same way that you rejected Christ, or that they rejected Joseph, you are rejecting Christ. In the same way that you rejected the message of God, you rejected the message of God that Christ is bringing In the same way that you've rejected Christ who was sent by his father. You rejected Joseph who was sent by his father. Joseph was marked out by his father. And so was Christ. Joseph was was, uh, given a message by his father and so was Christ. Joseph was the beloved son of his father and so was Christ. The Lord Jesus You guys have hated, not you. You who have rejected him, you have hated, just like his brothers. As Joseph approaches his brothers in Dotham, and they are saying, let's kill him. You could almost hear the New Testament saying he came to his own, but his own received him not. The Lord Jesus was attacked, wasn't he? He was stripped. His robe was torn from his body. He was mocked. He was sold to strangers by a betrayer, wasn't he? He was torn and he was bloody and he was thought to be dead. In this marvelous picture of Joseph, 1500 years later, we can see the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, rejected and delivered unto sinful men. For the salvation of many. That's what we are to learn from this chapter. That this Joseph. Points to the better Joseph. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the question I have for you in closing is this. How are you treating Christ who has been sent to you? Are you receiving him or are you rejecting him this morning? Are there things that are more important to you than Christ? Joseph is a picture of God's people and how we are to receive the message that God sends to his people. And there could be something here for us as well, isn't there? Because we are the elect of God. We are loved by our Father with a special love. We are given a love by our Father that others hate. We've been clothed in a rich and beautiful robe as well, haven't we? It's called the righteousness of Christ. We've been assured of our future, not by dreams, but by God's Word, that our future is bright. 
And we are hated by the world, aren't we? The doctrine which the world has always hated is the doctrine of election. The world hates our claim to a special status before God. We say we are the children of God. Not everyone's a child of God and the world hates us for it. And we may suffer persecution. Many believers throughout this world are, are, are cast into types of pits. The world would love to take off our royal robes that we have in Christ. But they shall not. Because we are eternally positioned in Christ and that position shall never be removed. We have a glorious future. If we place our faith in Christ, it is bright as the morning sun. You have been saved from the sin of this world and also saved from fear. The fear of things that sometimes attack this world. Because this world is not our home. And come what may, your future is bright. Whether you go to Walmart and there is no more toilet paper, you're still saved and set apart by God. Whether you open your pantry and there is no food, tomorrow is a brighter day. Because your tomorrow is an eternal one in Christ. So fear not. Your faith and your hope is in Christ. I hope that this chapter points you to Him, the eternal one, and that you see that in the same way Joseph was going to be set up to save his brothers from devastation, so Christ has went ahead of us and saved us from devastation. Place your faith in him and be saved. Let's pray.